Conversations on Healthcare. I'm Mark Maselli. And I'm Margaret Flinter. Well, Margaret, the countdown to October 1st continues. And that's the day that people can start shopping online for health insurance on the insurance exchanges, the online health insurance marketplaces that were created by the Affordable Care Act, or Obamacare as it's known. (laughs) It is. And while a myriad of questions still remain about how they'll function nationally and state by state, we're seeing a lot more information emerge day by day. Well, Mark, Health and Human Services Secretary Kathleen Sebelius just delivered a very upbeat update on the exchange, which will be covering Americans in 34 states, saying that they were on target to flip the switch on October 1st. And that's in spite of concerns that had been out there that this was just too much of an undertaking to be able to meet that deadline. Good for her. And in fact, she said folks seeking to purchase insurance on the federal exchanges can start opening up accounts now by going to their website, healthcare.gov, and setting up personal accounts to prepare for their actual health plan selection after October 1st. The administration sees this as a way to generate early participation in the exchanges, which are expected to bring in millions of uninsured Americans in the first year of operation. And, you know, I think that was one of our ideas. They ought to start now and get people primed, don't you think, Mark? It it certainly was. Uh, But the small business exchanges have been delayed until 2015. Many businesses are looking for answers now about uh, what will be expected of them. The administration has released an 800 number for small business owners to call with any questions about their responsibility. Well, I think that was a good idea. There were a lot of questions out there. And that number is 800-706-7893. That's 800-706-7893. Now, many small businesses will also be able to take advantage of tax credits once they provide coverage for their employees, really in a way similar to those that are purchasing plans on the individual market. You know, Margaret, uh, we've been focusing much of our discussion on the Affordable Care Act and how it will impact the 50 million uninsured Americans. But there are another 100 million Americans already who've gained insurance coverage through their employers. And it does beg the question, how is the health care law impacting large corporations and their insured employees? Well, our guest today is an expert on that topic, Mark. Ken Sperling is the National Exchange Strategy Leader at Aon Hewitt, which is the first company in the nation to create a multi-carrier health insurance exchange for corporations. And he sees exchanges as a growing trend in the corporate world. That's due to the competitive nature of the pricing on the exchanges, and I think also a desire to really drive quality of care. Lori Robertson will check in from factcheck.org. She's dispelling rumors that are being bandied about on the Senate floor about the health care law. But no matter what the topic, you can hear all of our shows by Googling CHC Radio. And as always, if you have comments, email us at chcradio.com or find us on Facebook or Twitter because we love hearing from you. We'll get to our interview with Ken Sperling in just a moment. But first, here's our producer, Marianne O'Hare, with this week's headline news. I'm Marianne O'Hare with these healthcare headlines. Aetna has pulled out of the running in another state insurance exchange. Connecticut, one of the 17 states setting up its own exchange, is the latest state in which Aetna has decided not to try and engage in a competitively priced insurance exchange marketplace, which have transparent pricing that is lower than the current going rate for individual insurance. Aetna has also pulled out of exchanges in California, Maryland, and Georgia. As for the federal exchanges, HHS Secretary Kathleen Sebelius has announced that folks in the 34 states relying on the federal exchange can open up accounts now in a first step towards preparing to select an insurance plan on the federal exchange once they become available October 1st. Sebelius says the plans will be available for perusal online in September. 
The political dissent continues over the Affordable Care Act, and now there's a dissent within the dissenting ranks. Republicans in Congress are split over a last-ditch effort to derail the health care law. Some within Republican ranks want to hold all government spending hostage when the fiscal year begins October 1st, if there's any funding left in the budget to implement the health care law. Congress has yet to approve a spending bill that will keep the government running after the fiscal year ends September 30th. Conservatives like Texas Republican Ted Cruz are behind the measure, which has been blasted by others within their ranks, including Majority Leader John Boehner. Electronic medical records may be your friend in the digital age, but you wouldn't know it from consumer responses. A survey conducted by the Wall Street Journal shows while 80% of the nation's hospitals have switched to electronic medical records, or EMRs, only 24% of consumers are making use of them. Studies have shown EMRs lead to improved outcomes and billions of dollars in federal incentives. Consumers are still reluctant to engage digitally with their health information. And breastfeeding is lauded as a hedge against obesity, allergies, and other diseases after the baby has grown. Add one more protective effect, stuttering. A study out of the University of Illinois, Urbana, showed that stutterers who were breastfed had a much better chance of returning to normal speech than those who weren't. The study found that for those who were breastfed for more than nine months, there was a consistent showing of improved language development. Researchers believe the magic is in the long-chain fatty acids in human breast milk, which promote healthy brain development. An infant's brain triples in size in the first year of life. I'm Mariano here with these healthcare headlines. We're speaking today with Ken Sperling, National Exchange Strategy Leader at Aon Hewitt, which is the first company in the nation to create a multi-carrier health insurance exchange for corporations. Mr. Sperling co-authored the textbook, The Fundamentals of Flexible Compensation, and has advised members of Congress and the administration on the development and implementation of health care reform legislation. He serves on the advisory boards of the University of Connecticut's Health Management Program and the American Benefit Council. Mr. Sperling, welcome to Conversations on Healthcare. Thank you, Mark. Ken, uh, we've talked a lot about the Affordable Care on this show, and much of the discussion both here and across the media landscape has really focused in on the 50 million uninsured Americans and bringing them into the healthcare system. And you've spent a good part of your lifetime analyzing the healthcare industry through the lens of the corporate world. So let's take a look at what's happening at the corporate world and Aon Hewitt uh, advises 70% of the nation's Fortune 500 companies in this country, and healthcare represents a really substantial uh, part of their bottom line. So, how do you see the nation's major employers changing or evolving healthcare compensation in the context of the Affordable Care Act? Well, Mark, employers currently spend over $10,000 per employee. Um, on healthcare, and that's about a 2012 number. And that number um, has been increasing over 9% annually over the last five years. And it's really hindering American corporations' ability to compete in a global landscape. That said, healthcare has been an important part of total rewards and the HR deal with employees you know, since health insurance became part of employee benefits in World War II. And employers are not planning on dropping coverage or sending employees over to the state or federal health care exchanges. They're going to stay in the game. But they're trying to find different paths to find a sustainable growth rate on health care costs. You know, the absolute number is troubling. But what is even more troubling is the rate of increase. So trying to find a way to keep health care cost increases closer to the rate of general inflation or CPI has been a real challenge. And what corporations are trying to do now is 
looking for those different paths, either through improving the overall health of their population or looking at private exchanges as a way to control the overall rate of... Well, Ken, I know we're going to zero in more on costs in a little bit, but let me uh, focus right now on the insurance exchanges, certainly a front and center area of discussion. There's still a lot unknown about how the state and federal exchanges will function in practical terms. And the Affordable Care Act created this this framework for setting up the exchanges to build the online marketplaces, but the corporate insurance market can't tap into those state and federal and small business exchanges for a couple of years now, until 2017. And yet you've established a corporate exchange, which has been up and running since last year, I understand. So share with us, how does your exchange look like and differ from the uh, government-run exchanges? What have you learned from those exchanges that are being set up, and maybe what in turn could the government exchanges learn from what you've done? So, Margaret, we we love the exchange concept, uh, not just as it applies to insurance, but it applies to the general marketplace. And if you think about it, Amazon, Orbitz, Zappos, those are all exchanges. Those are all online retail marketplaces. And probably the most famous exchange is the New York Stock Exchange. Mm -hmm. So so this is a marketplace where buyers and sellers come together, and it's a very efficient marketplace. And we love that concept. But we didn't want to wait until 2017 when large companies had the ability to take advantage of these marketplaces. So we decided to build it ourselves. And the concept of a marketplace where consumers can vote with their feet – is is probably the best way that employers can can hope to control healthcare costs going forward because in every retail marketplace when you have competition prices go down every time so what we borrowed was a concept we borrowed terminology so we're calling the the plans that people can enroll in bronze and silver and gold and platinum because we want to get away from insurance jargon that really nobody understands mm-hmm. so those are the, the the things that we borrowed what's different is Our exchange has group coverage. There's still employer-sponsored plans. Uh, It's not a big pool where everybody kind of gets the same rate. Every company gets their own separate rate when they participate in our exchange because if a company really does well in in managing the health of their population, their employees should benefit from lower rates. Um, We have standardized the design um, to make shopping easier because one of the things that it really frustrates consumers is, you know, I have to spend, you know, 30 minutes to see what my, you know, physical therapy might be between one choice that I have and another. That doesn't make any sense. So down to 180 different plan design provisions, it's all the same to make that shopping experience easier for the consumer. And the other thing that differentiates us from the state and federal exchanges is we are putting this on an administrative platform that Aon Hewitt has been serving 20 million people for over 10 years. Ken, you recently did a survey of the nation's largest uh, employers trying to gauge what they would like to see in health insurance funding moving forward. And your survey showed that most are committed to offering their employees continued compensation for health insurance coverage. But the model's changing. Is it possible that some corporations will look to just totally get out of this HR world? It's being commoditized on the exchanges and just be done with it. But there are others on the other side who are saying, we have a vested interest in our employees. We want to make them healthy, but we also want to control our cost. Tell us what's going on. Well, what's going on is employers, as you say, have a vested interest in the health of their population. They care whether or not people come to work every day and when they show up for work that they're productive. And it's not just a health insurance issue. 
It's absenteeism and productivity and disability. And when you add all those things together, the cost of a sick worker or a worker who doesn't show up because of a health issue is massive. It's more than just the cost of the health insurance. So employers still have a vested interest in making sure their employees come to work. It's an overall productivity issue, and that's what will keep employers in the game. From a financial standpoint, let's also recognize that if an employer doesn't provide health insurance, the Affordable Care Act assesses a penalty. That penalty is designed so that um, an employer has to really think twice about abandoning health insurance coverage for their employees. And the way the Affordable Care Act was designed is to try to firewall the employer-sponsored system and keep it intact. Uh, The Affordable Care Act was designed to provide access to insurance coverage and subsidized insurance coverage for the 50 million people who currently do not have it today. It was not designed to replace the employer-sponsored system, and the penalties that are in place ensure that that's not going to happen. Ken, you've talked about the uh, market forces driving down the costs, and I'd like to focus in on the transparency part of the equation for a moment and ask you how transparency in the insurance marketplace is really changing the game. When we look at transparency, it seems like it's got to be around the pricing and it's got to be around quality and safety as well. And I wonder if you just opine on how you're sort of tackling that as you bring this kind of new corporate exchange forward. Sure. When you think about the you know premiums and what is driving down premiums, it's not necessarily a transparency issue. It's around, it's around competition. And as we said, whenever you have competition in retail marketplace, prices go down. However, you also have another parallel movement going on in the employee benefits landscape, and that is a movement away from 5 and $10 co-pays to higher deductibles and have more cost sharing on the employee side. And that's just uh, a reality of the fact that you know we as consumers and we as employers and we as a nation just can't afford to provide 100% or close to 100% coverage for healthcare for every service. As we move to additional cost sharing and higher deductibles, and people are exposed to, to funding the cost of a doctor visit or a prescription drug, um, what those things cost become really important. And you know, there is a big difference between the prices of MRIs, um, even within the same city. You can get an MRI for $700, and you can get the same MRI at a different place for $2,500. Does a consumer have a right to know those differences? Absolutely. But as you say, that's been kind of shrouded in secrecy, and the market is demanding um, greater cost transparency and information on quality so they can make informed purchasing decisions So we're seeing a shift to empowering the consumer to make those decisions, but you can't just anoint somebody a healthcare consumer and not give them the information that they need to make a good decision. So the marketplace is moving um, rather quickly to providing more information to consumers to help them make informed decisions. We're speaking today with Ken Sperling, National Exchange Strategy Leader at Aon Hewitt, which is the first company in the nation to create a multi-carrier health insurance exchange for large corporations. Mr. Sperling is a sought-after health analyst on Wall Street and is co-author of the textbook, The Fundamentals of Flexible Compensation. Ken, you said a lot there, and uh, I was just trying to think about the the role that corporations have had in trying to control cost. I think going back to Lee Iacocca, where he tried to get into the healthcare and where the corporations for years have been trying to sort of throttle down 
the cost. It seems like they've abandoned that strategy in some ways and said, you know, really, it's too big. It's bigger than we are. The healthcare empire, 18% of the GDP, we really can't control it. So now what we've decided to do is just shift the cost over to the employee, hoping that maybe we'll get them engaged in this conversation and control costs. But costs seem to be the big driver, big concern for healthcare corporations. Sort of in that context, how are employees being helped to better understand their healthcare options and enroll in plans that are best suited to them? Uh, because perhaps they may make the wrong choice just based on cost, but not on their healthcare needs. So decision support is very important, especially when you give people multiple options, which is essentially what happens in an exchange environment. You are giving an employee a fixed amount of money, saying, here's how much we subsidize for your health care. And you're giving them options to choose from in terms of coverage and in terms of which insurance company they might want to buy it from. So you, you have to support that consumer with with valid and relevant decision support tools so they can make an informed decision. You have to allow them to, to look to see if their doctors are in the network, if their prescriptions are on the formulary, if, if they need help deciding which plan is right for them, how much of a deductible could you afford? Could you um, afford a, a $1,500 expense if it came at you in the middle of the year? And if not, then you might want to choose richer coverage, which carries with it a a higher payroll contribution, but at least it's certainty of a payroll contribution versus the uncertainty of a big deductible. And different people are going to come and come out in different ways. And in our exchange, what we saw last year was when you give people all of these options, we saw 42% of people bought a lesser amount of coverage than they had and put the difference in their pocket in terms of lower payroll contributions. About 33% of people stayed approximately where they were but the remaining 26% of people bought up. They bought more coverage than they had before hmm. because they wanted the certainty of a, um, a fixed amount that they were exposed to for healthcare expenses, and they were willing to pay a little bit more out of their pocket in payroll contributions to get that, uh, that insurance that would make them sleep better at night. And that's fine. People got what they wanted, and that's the important thing. So, Ken, when I uh, think about the corporate exchange that you're setting up and the uh, tens of millions of people who may get their insurance through it, um, I can have the image of either a, a giant uh, business corporation or a giant public health organization in my mind simultaneously. And the reason the public health uh, idea comes to my mind is because you potentially um, have the ability to really drive some changes in uh, – work culture, employment culture around wellness and around improving the health of workers. And there's been so much research in this area in recent years, so much more that needs to be done about the kinds of things that uh, employers can do uh, to affect the health status of their employees positively. I wonder if you'd like to uh, give us your insights on what you see as some of the most promising strategies uh, in that arena. Certainly many individual companies have been trying workplace wellness programs and programs to improve outcomes um, the jury kind of uh, limited, uh, or the results still kind of limited on whether those are effective. But what do you see, and is there a power of the sort of the, uh, you know, the bringing together of these plans into an exchange to make further improvements from a real kind of public health and improvement of the population's health status? So what we're finding is the, the wellness and health improvement landscape is evolving. Uh, what workplace wellness programs have been in the past is a really scattershot of programs 
that employers have kind of put out to employees. They've you know, had a menu of things that they made available. Um, it wasn't easy to find which programs were available to me if I actually wanted one of them. Um, so what we found was lots of programs, limited um, use, and kind of sketchy return on investment. Where we are now and where we're going is a zeroing in on those programs that have the most impact on improving health and managing chronic disease. So specifically nutrition and exercise Mm -hmm. Uh, because obesity is probably the center of all evil when it comes to (laughs) uh, what, what generates chronic disease and healthcare costs. Uh, I'm not saying that, you know, smoking cessation and some of those other programs aren't valuable, but what employers are finding out is that if they can increase the level of exercise of their population and people can eat better um, and control their weight, just focusing on those two things, you know, gets you 80% of the way there. So rather than have a whole bunch of programs that nobody uses, they're focusing on putting incentives in place and putting focus on just those programs that have the most impact for their population. So we're, we're seeing a narrowing and a targeting mm-hmm. of wellness programs to the ones that will have the greatest impact. Can just take me back uh, a little on the sort of formation in your mind of uh, the exchanges you, you alluded a little to. There are lots of exchanges going on, but who, who was this sort of the uh, uh, original thinker on, on bringing this over the corporate uh, uh, world? And where are you in size right now in terms of how many people are doing it? What's, what's it and what's it look like if you're an employee in a corporation. There are hundreds of them, thousands of them around the United States. And 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 talk a little bit about where it's headed. You know, it's early stage, right? You're in the garage phase of phase of innovation here uh, in in the exchange, but you're looking to not only uh, get larger in size, but a little more sophisticated. So tell our listeners a little more about it from its beginning to uh, where it is now and how it might be used by many people who are listening here who are working for large corporations. So our exchange launched um, in, in fall enrollment of 2012 with coverage effective January 1st, 2013, uh, serving over 100,000 employees, representing over 200,000 covered lives, so employees and their dependents. Um, we are expanding uh, that enrollment count um, for 2014 substantially, and there are other exchanges that are coming into the marketplace that will also um, serve you know other companies. What does it feel like to an employee? Well, it, it kind of feels like Amazon or Zappos or Expedia. So you know you come out to the exchange website, uh, and the company says, you know, here's how here's how much you you know you, you get to spend. Here's your gift card that you can use in the store, and then you see um, Aetna and. United Healthcare and Cigna and Blue Cross and Kaiser and the health plans that are available to you, and you see bronze and silver and gold and platinum plans, and then you have the decision support tools that are available to you to say, show me just the Aetna plans, show me just the bronze plans, um, rack them and stack them from low cost to high cost, or help me decide um, based on you know, how many times I think I'm going to go to the doctor and, and what drugs I take. Um, and, and help me narrow my choices to a three or four relevant few um, that I'm going to use to make my ultimate decision. Um, so it, it feels like a retail shopping experience, but just for healthcare. 
We've been speaking today with Ken Sperling, National Exchange Strategy Leader at Aon Hewitt, the first company in the nation to create a multi-carrier health insurance exchange for corporations. You can learn more about his work by going to aonhewitt.com. Ken, thank you so much for joining us on Conversations on Healthcare today. Thank you, Margaret. Conversations on Healthcare, we want our audience to be truly in the know when it comes to the facts about healthcare reform and policy. Lori Robertson is an award winning journalist and managing editor of FactCheck.org, a nonpartisan, nonprofit consumer advocate for voters that aim to reduce the level of deception in U.S. politics. Lori, what have you got for us this week? Well, we're continuing to see misinformation about the Affordable Care Act. This time, Senator Roy Blunt wrongly said that those applying for federal subsidies to buy insurance could lie about their income with, quote, no way to verify that. Blunt made the claim in July, shortly after the Obama administration announced that it was delaying for one year the requirement that employers with 50 or more full-time workers provide insurance or pay a penalty. The Missouri Republican claimed that the administration had also, quote, waived the income verification requirement. But that's not true. All income claims on subsidy applications will be checked against available federal information, such as previous tax filings. Those who don't have previous filings will be asked for more details. The rules to which Blunt referred pertain to applicants who claim household income more than 10% below what government data show, and who give an insufficient explanation for the change, and for whom current information is unavailable. So the old rules said the exchanges would have to seek further verification for all such applications. Now they only have to check a statistically significant sample of these suspect applications for 2014. So folks who want to lie could take the gamble that they'd slip through the cracks and get away with it, but the IRS will still double-check what they say with 2014 tax returns filed later. The IRS can recoup subsidy payments, and there are hefty fines for committing fraud. And that's my fact check for this week. I'm Lori Robertson, managing editor of factcheck.org. Factcheck.org is committed to factual accuracy from the country's major political players and is a project of the Annenberg Public Policy Center at the University of Pennsylvania. If you have a fact that you'd like checked, email us at chcradio.com. We'll have factcheck.org's Lori Robertson check it out for you here on Conversations on Healthcare. Each week, Conversations highlights a bright idea about how to make wellness a part of our communities and everyday lives. Smoking bans across the country have yielded countless health benefits in myriad ways, reducing smoking-related illness and death. And while smoking in most buildings and public establishments has been banned across the country for years, it's still a ubiquitous practice in most of the nation's casinos, subjecting employees and patrons of these establishments to prolonged secondhand smoke exposure. The state of Colorado recently passed a ban on smoking in the state's casinos, and the results have been dramatic. Once smoking was banned, the number of emergency ambulance calls dropped by 20 percent. Dr. Stanton Glantz, director of the Center for Tobacco Control, Research, and Education at the University of California at San Francisco, says it's really a pretty simple equation. Long-term exposure to secondhand smoke increases the risk of the development of blood clots that can block arteries, causing an attack. There are two different ways that exposure to tobacco smoke increases your risk of heart disease. There's the long-term effects of 
increasing atherosclerosis, but there's also this acute triggering effect. And even a few minutes of secondhand smoke exposure is enough to make your blood platelets get stickier. And when that happens, they stick together and they are more likely to form a blood clot. And if that blood clot lodges in an artery in your heart, it causes a heart attack. And also the sticky platelets tear up the lining of the arteries. And, uh, and if they happen to tear uh, one of the f a fibrous cap covering uh, a, a fat buildup and atherosclerosis, that would also trigger a heart attack. So you could have people who, you know, never smoked in their life uh, but had a bad family history or ate too much ice cream and were at an increased risk of heart attack who walked into a smoky casino and the, the, the short-term exposure in that casino or any other smoky environment could actually trigger a heart attack. Exposure to cigarette smoke can also trigger other adverse events like stroke, asthma attacks, and COPD flare-ups. The American Heart Association has applauded the first-of-its-kind study supporting the smoking ban in casinos and hopes that operators of casinos around the country take note. The, the clear implication of this work is continuing to permit smoking in casinos and other environments, for that matter, is sending people to the hospital. And it's not doing it next month or next year or five years from now. It's doing it right now. And a 20% change in, in the number of ambulance calls, you know, I mean, that's very substantial. A smoking ban in casinos populated by thousands of people, eliminating secondhand smoke exposure to those people, and significantly reducing smoking-related medical emergencies? Now that's a bright idea. This is Conversations on Healthcare. I'm Margaret Flinter. And I'm Mark Maselli. Peace and health. Conversations on Healthcare broadcast from the campus of WESU at Wesleyan University, streaming live at WESUFM.org, and brought to you by the Community Health Center.